Today is Wednesday, January the 10th, 2024. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the minds of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Me tells victims it's their fault that their data was breached. The following is as reported in TechCrunch. Facing more than 30 lawsuits from victims of its massive data breach, 23andMe is now deflecting the blame to the victims themselves in an attempt to absolve itself from any responsibility, according to a letter sent to a group of victims. Rather than acknowledge in this data security disaster, 23andMe has apparently decided to leave its customers out to dry while downplaying the seriousness of these events. In December, 23andMe admitted that Hackers had stolen the genetic and ancestry data of 6.9 million users. That's nearly half of all its customers. The data breach started with hackers accessing only around 14,000 user accounts. The hackers broke into this first set of victims by brute-forcing accounts with passwords that were known to be associated with the targeted customers, a technique known as credential stuffing. From these 14,000 initial victims, however, the hackers were able to then access the personal data of the other 6.9 million victims because they had opted into 23andMe's DNA relatives feature. This optional feature allows customers to automatically share some of their data with people who are considered their relatives on the platform. In other words, By hacking into only 14,000 customers' accounts, the hackers subsequently were able to scrape personal data of another 6.9 million customers whose accounts were not directly hacked. But in a letter sent by a group of hundreds of 23andMe users who are now suing the company, 23andMe said that users negligently recycled and failed to update their passwords following these past security incidents which are unrelated to 23andMe. Therefore, the incident was not a result of 23andMe alleged failure to maintain reasonable security measures, the letter reads. 
23andMe is shamelessly blaming the victims of the data breach. This finger-pointing is nonsensical. 23andMe knew and should have known that many consumers use recycled passwords and thus that 23andMe should have implemented some of the many safeguards available to protect against credential stuffing, especially considering that 23andMe stores personal identifying information, health information, and genetic information on its platform. The breach impacted millions of consumers whose data was exposed through the DNA relative feature on 23andMe's platform, not because they use recycled passwords. Of those millions, only a few thousand accounts were compromised due to credential stuffing. 23andMe's attempt to shirk responsibility by blaming its customers does nothing for these millions of consumers whose data was compromised through no fault of their own whatsoever. 23andMe's lawyers argue that the stolen data cannot be used to inflict monetary damage against the victims. The information that was potentially accessed cannot be used for any harm, they say, as explained in an October 6, 2023 blog post. The profile information that may have been accessed related to the DNA relatives feature, which a customer creates and chooses to share with other users on 23andMe's platform. Such information would only be available if plaintiffs affirmatively elected to share this information with other users. Yeah, but they didn't mean with other hackers, via the DNA relatives feature. Additionally, the information that the unauthorized actor potentially obtained about plaintiffs could not have been used to cause any harm. It did not include social security number, driver's license number, or any payment or financial information, said 23andMe lawyers. After disclosing the breach, 23andMe reset all customers' passwords and then required all customers to use multi-factor authentication, which was only optional before the breach. In an attempt to preempt the inevitable class action lawsuits and mass arbitration claims, 23andMe changed its terms of service to make it more difficult for victims to band together when filing a legal claim against the company. Lawyer with experience representing data breach victims said that the changes were cynical, self-serving, and a desperate attempt to protect itself and deter customers from going after the company. Clearly, the changes didn't stop what is now a flurry of class action lawsuits. Apps will be reporting your earnings to tax authorities. Apps like eBay and Airbnb will be reporting your earnings to tax authorities under a new global agreement. There are a number of apps which allow private citizens to earn money from selling unwanted items to renting out your home while you're on vacation. Whether or not you have to pay tax on this income depends on an often complex set of rules which vary by country. In many countries, you can, in principle, resell items you have bought for personal use without tax liability, but there are often limits on how much you can earn from this before it is classified as trading and becomes taxable. Similarly, you may be able to rent out your home or room for a certain period or up to a certain amount without paying tax, 
but have to treat it as taxable income beyond those limits. Many people are either unaware of the potential tax implications of app-generated income or deliberately fail to report it. To counter both problems, the 38 members of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, otherwise with the acronym OECD, have signed up to a new agreement under which app owners will automatically share your earnings with tax authorities in your country. OECD members include the U.S. and many European countries. The new rules require digital platforms to report the income sellers are getting through their site routinely. It will apply to sales of goods such as things that have been handcrafted and secondhand clothes, but also services including taxi hire, food delivery, freelance work, and short-term accommodation lets or even renting out your driveway for parking. The government said the new rules would help it bear down on tax evasion as sellers on digital platforms will now be treated more like traditional businesses. At the beginning of the year was the date by which apps had to begin collecting the information, though it won't be handed over to tax bodies until the beginning of next year. Once 12 months' data has been acquired, Free digital platform available for New York residents 50 and older. The New York State Office for the Aging, with the acronym NYSOFA, and the Association on Aging in New York, remind those 50 and older to take advantage of free classes during these potentially isolating winter months and beyond. Through the state's partnership with Get Set Up, some of the goals are to shrink the digital divide and to tackle social isolation through connections. The director, Greg Olson with NYSOFA, said, Residents have access to over 4,500 online learning and social opportunities. If you are in New York State, these are 100% free for anybody over the age of 50. This is a platform that was designed by people 50 and older for people 50 and over. All of the individuals that are teaching classes and courses are 50 and over. Once a resident heads to Get Set Up, which operates around the clock, some of the categories for classes include aging in place, cooking, financial planning, and wellness, travel, and more. Olson said a user can make an impromptu visit to one of the virtual sessions. No registrations needed. To get access to Get Set Up and Awe, use the following URL, getsetup.io forward slash partner forward slash New York State. And if you're interested in teaching one of these virtual sessions, you can go to that website to register for it. I hope to be able to follow up to talk to the head of this organization because it was not clear on their website whether or not this was limited to New York State residents. One of their spokespersons said, no, it's available to anyone, and it's not limited to New York State residency. The Department of Justice is reportedly prepared to file a broad antitrust lawsuit against Apple. The case could be filed within the next six months. According to the New York Times, 
the United States Department of Justice, that's a DOJ, could file a sweeping antitrust case against Apple as soon as the first half of this year. The report says the agency is in the late stages of its investigation, focusing on the company's control over the hardware and software services and how its Ward Garden approach has allegedly made it harder for rivals to compete and customers to switch to competing products. The New York Times report says the investigation has expanded beyond what was previously reported, according to people with knowledge of the meetings. Among other areas, its scope has allegedly covered how the Apple Watch is more tightly integrated with iPhone services than rival wearables and how it locks competing platform out of iMessage. Executives from Beepa, a messaging app, reportedly had discussions with investigators regarding Apple's blocking of the app's iMessage integration on Android. Tile, another company that has been making Bluetooth trackers for a long time, also allegedly had conversations with the Department of Justice. The discussion centered around Apple's practice of blocking rivals from using tap-to-pay on the iPhone. Meta, the parent company of Facebook, reportedly encouraged the DOJ to investigate Apple's app tracking transparency. That's the ATT privacy tool during their meetings. ATT, launched in 2021, allows users to limit advertisers' data collection. Meta claims that this feature could cost them $10 billion in 2022. The New York Times claims that investigators have looked into Apple's cut of digital purchases made on the iPhone. This issue has been raised by companies like Spotify, Epic Games, and Match Group in recent years. The federal government currently has its hands full with big tech antitrust cases. The Department of Justice is pursuing two antitrust cases against Google, one for search and the other for advertising, while the FTC has sued Meta and Amazon. NVIDIA set to launch China-focused AI chip in the second quarter of this year amid export rule compliance. This initiative comes as NVIDIA aims to navigate and comply with the restrictions outlined in October of last year. In a strategic move to adhere to U.S. export regulations, NVIDIA, the U.S. chipmaker, is gearing up to commence mass production of its H20 artificial intelligence chip in the second quarter of 2024, catering specifically to the Chinese market. According to a Reuters report, this initiative comes as NVIDIA aims to navigate and comply with the restrictions outlined in October. While originally slated for launch in November, delays were reported due to integration challenges faced by server manufacturers. The H20 chip, considered the most potent among the three designed for China, is set to undergo limited initial production with a primary focus on fulfilling major customer orders. Chinese companies, however, reportedly exhibit reluctance in purchasing the downgraded H20, exploring domestic alternatives amidst concerns that the U.S. might further tighten restrictions. Notably, last year, Baidu, a leading search engine company, opted for AI chips from Huawei Technologies, signaling a shift away from NVIDIA. 
The other two chips designed to comply with the new restrictions, namely the L20 and the L2, are also part of NVIDIA's strategy with sales announcements pending. The chip maker launched a modified version of an advanced gaming chip in late December, marking its commitment to preserving its market share in China amid tighten export regulations. NVIDIA's A800 and H800 AI chips, initially introduced as alternatives for Chinese customers in November 2022, faced restrictions in shipping due to tightened U.S. export regulations. In response, NVIDIA's H20, L20, and L2 chips aim to incorporate most of the company's cutting-edge AI features while adhering to computing power reductions mandated by the new rules. The only difference between the A800 and H800 AI chips versus the H20, L20, and L2 is computing power. The H20 chip is designed to comply with U.S. export rules, and NVIDIA has been working to navigate around these restrictions. However, it is important to note that the situation is fluid and subject to change. In essence, NVIDIA is still selling AI chips to China, just running at a slower speed. NVIDIA says this complies with the restrictions announced in October. As for whether NVIDIA will comply with U.S. export regulations, the company has not made any public statements indicating otherwise. If this is NVIDIA's interpretation of restricting the exportation of AI chips to China, we have a communications problem. Microsoft Copilot is a chatbot developed by Microsoft. It was launched as Bing Chat on February the 7th, 2023, as a built-in feature for Microsoft Bing and Microsoft Edge. It is based on a large language model and has been suggested by Microsoft as a support replacement for the discontinued Cortana. Microsoft says a Copilot key is coming to keyboards on Windows PC starting this month. Microsoft's Copilot Assistant has been rolling out on Windows 10 and Windows 11. Beginning later this month, device makers will release PCs with keyboards featuring a new Copilot key. It's the biggest change to the Windows keyboard in almost 30 years. Microsoft said keyboards are upcoming Windows PCs will feature a Copilot key for having text conversations with the software makers a virtual assistant. It's one of the most prominent additions to the Windows keyboard since the 1994 introduction of the Windows key for viewing the start menu. Copilot in Windows taps artificial intelligence models from Microsoft-backed startup OpenAI, which operates its own popular ChatGPT chatbot. It can compose human-like text in response to a few words of written input. People can tell it to write out emails, answer questions, create images, and turn on PC features. Workers in businesses that pay for Copilot for Microsoft 365 can receive highlights of Teams chats and get help with writing Word documents. Microsoft has started delivering Copilot on PCs with Windows 10 the world's most popular operating system, and Windows 11. People can hold down the Windows key and push the C key 
sea lichen cable to summon Copilot. Now it's getting a dedicated key. Although Windows isn't the juggernaut it used to be, Microsoft still derives about 10% of its revenue from the operating system. So anything it can do to spur a wave of PC upgrades could lead to a revenue bump. Companies such as Dell and HP are looking to sell replacements to the PCs that consumers, students, and corporate workers bought during the COVID-19 pandemic. The technology industry has agreed on a term called the AIPC, which often means having special chip components inside devices to run computationally demanding models more efficiently than standard silicon. Enhancements to Windows PCs at the chip level will make the 2024 the year of the AIPC, says Microsoft head of Windows and Surface in a recent blog post. In some cases, the Copilot key will replace the menu key or the right control key, a Microsoft spokesperson had said in an email. Some larger computers will have enough room for both the Copilot key and the right control key. Firefox web browser slipping into irrelevance. With its market share hitting a new low, can Firefox rise from the ashes, or is this the end? The Netscape browser suite source code was open source in 1998. The Mozilla project sprang up to turn it first into a universal internet client and then into a pure web browser. Firefox in 2002, that same year, well over 90% of internet users were using Internet Explorer. Firefox was on its way. First, Netscape loyalists and open source and Linux fans moved to it. Over time, it gained a mass following. By the summer of 2010, Firefox reached its high point of 34.1% of the market. However, it's been all downhill since then. The U.S. federal government's digital analytic program, that's a DAP, however, give us a running count of the last 90 days of U.S. government website visits. That doesn't tell us much about global web browser use, but it's the best information we have about American web browsers' users today. And the top web browser is, according to the DAP, 5.27 billion visits over the past 90 days, just as you expect, Google Chrome, with 47.9%. Firefox, with only 2.2% of the market, is sliding rapidly downward. Safari, with 36.2%, thanks to the iPhone's popularity in the States, and Edge, with 8.3%, are both more popular than Firefox. At least IE totally dropped off the list in 2022. There's nothing new about Firefox's decline. In 2022, Firefox dropped to 2.6% from 2021's 2.7%. In 2015, Firefox had an 11% market share. By 2016, Firefox had declined to 8.2%. It had a slight bounce upward by 2018 to 9%. Chrome numbers are actually even bigger than they first appear. Its open source foundation, Chromium, also powers Microsoft Edge, and except for Mozilla Firefox, all the other web browsers that matter, such as Opera, Vivaldi, and Brave, run on top of Chromium. 
None of those other browsers, by the way, have any market share to speak of. Altogether, they come to a mere 0.8% of DAP numbers. So what happened? Google fundamentally reinvented the browser in 2008. Google started creating an entirely new operating system for a cloud-based open web with its own extensions and applications. A lot of hardcore Firefox fans are now happy Chrome users. Mozilla only stays in business because Google pays Mozilla hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties annually. According to Mozilla's 2022 financial report, of Mozilla's $593 million in revenue, $510 million comes from Google. Mozilla still asks for donations and claims to be internet by the people, for the people, and that it seeks to counterbalance the entrenched tech companies. The numbers, however, tell a different story. Mozilla CEO Mitchell Baker earned almost $7 million in 2022, a raise of $1.3 million, according to comparably average Mozilla executive compensation is slightly over $210,000 a year. In Silicon Valley, those numbers aren't outrageous, but Firefox market share continues to circle the drain. Many users would rather those funds be spent on improving Firefox and not on executive salaries or investing in side issues such as artificial intelligence. There are many of us who would like to see Firefox rise from the ashes as, like in his first name, Phoenix. Gmail for Android gets an essential feature for better email management. Gmail is one of the most widely used email servers in the world. While the app provides you with all the options one would need out of an email app, it lacks one essential feature that should have been present from day one. The Gmail app did not feature a select all option and you had to manually select each email if you wish to delete archive, or categorize the emails in your inbox. Thankfully, that is changing as a new update is rolling out for the Gmail Android app, bringing the Select All option to the app for better email management. The Select All option only selects 50 emails displayed on the page. This feature was long demanded by Gmail users, and finally, it is live for everyone. All you need to do is long press an email or tap on the sender's avatar to select a single email and you will see the select all option at the top of the list. The Gmail select all option appears on all views including inboxes and categories. However, do note that the select all option within the Gmail Android app doesn't select all emails, rather it selects all emails on a page. This means that when you hit the Select All button, it selects the 50 emails displayed on the page. If you don't see the Select All option, then you should install the Gmail Android app update available on the Play Store. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. 
This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, and... Okay, so actually, I'm in the middle of a four-part series, which is just about the workplace side of it. It's very little in regards to computers or technology. It's just something I've seen, and we will all continue to see. The four parts are quiet quitting, quiet firing, loud quitting, and quiet hiring. We're on the second week. So if you missed anything in regards to quiet quitting, you want to go back to last week, check it out. But this week, quiet firing. And this has a number of different synonymous terms. It is that constructive discharge. It's that silent termination. It's that lack of career progress. Now, before I go too far into this, I want to note that, you know, you may be sitting there. You may be feeling like you are in the world where everybody is is looking for you to leave. And that that may not be exactly what you think it is. There is a certain level of paranoia that comes along with uh, with certain people, and you may just be paranoid. Chill out if you're naturally prone to paranoia attitudes. I know people who are, and I know people who uh, they've got the other idea. Uh, and let's let's really kind of balance this out. Sometimes that appearance of quiet firing, that lack of progress, that lack of exciting things in the workplace, that all of that different stuff that might come along with, you know, feeling ignored or whatever, it may be just a byproduct of slowdowns in your particular job, your division, the entire company. It may be uh, something where you have a lack of progress forward because the company is not at a place where people can move forward. The idea that you are going to get a progressive every two years, you're going to get a promotion and, uh, and, and all of that, that may not come. Hopefully, you'll get some level of financial reward, but the idea of like that game of life. You remember the game of life? You'd sit there and everybody would gather around and you'd spin the dial and you would progress on up and eventually you'd become like the CEO of the company. You'd become the world's greatest, you know, doctor as far as curing cancer, you know, crazy stuff. Well, life's progressions don't work like that. And I I want to go back to that other side. I, I hinted at this. There is a certain level of entitlement expectations by some workers of, oh, I can do my boss's job, so I should have it. Now, without a doubt, there are people out there who believe that they should be CEO They should be the boss, even though they've been working at the company for three weeks or three months or whatever. Before you believe that you've been quiet fired, you need to sit back. You need to examine your own expectations. The idea of sitting down and plotting out your career path over the course of the coming decades when you're just starting out or even in the middle of it, things happen. It goes all over the place. Look, Quiet firing does happen. I'm not going to play that down, but you need to remember both sides of this. So think about it. There are upsides 
for the whole idea of quiet firing, a matter of, yes, somebody will go along and they will start progressing through and they will start moving into that finding a new job. They'll be displeased with where they're at. That's that's tricky, though. Because it also means that some morale may be plummeting. Of course, sometimes there are there are situations where we have employees that they're in a position, they do a job very well, and they do it so well that we can't find anybody to come up from underneath to fill that role. So they're held back. And that's that's a tough situation. I wound up in that situation once at a, a, a company long ago. I was really good at what I did. I was the last person out the door when we when we finally downsized so far that the enti- the entire division was merged with another division halfway across the country. But I went through multiple series of downsizing, and I was never the one on the chopping block. But I also never progressed. Look, what can be done? Look, uh, if for, for bosses, look, instead of playing around with this quiet game, you need to open up a dialogue. You need to discuss your expectations, the areas of improvement, and also the areas where if this isn't improved, you might be looking to plan your exit. Encourage them to plan their way out versus you having to come along and uh, push them out. Of course, if you're the employee, you, you've got to do that same thing. You've got to open up that dialogue. You've got to say, how can I progress forward? How can we resolve this roadblock in front of me? What, what are the objective items that I need to be doing to improve that I need to be doing to become a better value to the company. There's a lot of drama here. There's a lot of, of a requirement for us to engage. And yes, there are going to be some occasions where that requirement for improvement may be something that it's stated there. You've got to do this and that and this and that. And then in a couple of years, we can start talking about it. And, you know, take that. Explore that. You need to really think about your feedback that you receive as constructive, as a building block. Feedback, by the way, is a gift. Take it, use it wisely. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Executive Order for Establishment of New Standards for AI Safety and Security. Several leaders in the field of cutting-edge technology have signed a letter calling for artificial intelligence developers to pause their work for six months. However, there is no U.S. federal or state government entity that has clear legal authority to issue a moratorium on the training of large AI systems. Placing a moratorium on AI would slow its benefits, such as advances in healthcare, learning to use Earth's limited resources efficiently, and fight climate change, reducing traffic and transportation injuries, translating languages, and increasing human productivity. Elon Musk called for a moratorium 
on AI in 2023 set off waves of concern and resistance within the tech community, magnifying the fear surrounding artificial intelligence and sparking discussions on responsible development practices. The idea of a pause in artificial intelligence development has been proposed by some experts and organizations. The Future of Life Institute, for instance, has called for a six-month pause in the development of artificial intelligence systems. The purpose of such a pause is to allow professionals to inquire into the ethical and social concerns surrounding the advances of this technology and ensure that its development is carried out in a responsible manner. There are pros and cons to this idea. Some argue that the risk of artificial intelligence poses an existential threat to humanity is too great to ignore and that a pause in development is necessary to better prepare for and guard against the outcome. Others feel that the risk is worth taking on due to more pressing threat facing humanity. Climate change, the hope is that rapid AI development will provide us with the tools we need to avert climate disaster. It is important to note that the debate surrounding the idea of a pause in artificial intelligence development is still ongoing, and there are many different opinions on the matter. Ultimately, the decision to pause or continue AI development will depend on how society weighs the potential benefits and risk of this technology. President Biden issued an executive order on safe, secure, and trustworthy artificial intelligence on October the 30th of last year. The executive order builds on voluntary commitments from 15 leading companies to drive safe, secure, and trustworthy development of artificial intelligence. It directs various actions, including the establishment of new standards for AI safety and security. But who are these 15 companies that the executive order is calling on? The companies are Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, Meta Platform, OpenAI, NVIDIA, IBM, Intel, Qualcomm, Salesforce, SAP, Siemens, Sony, Verizon, and Vodafone. These are all big tech companies. Overall, the executive order on AI issued by President Biden aims to establish new standards, protect privacy, advance equity and civil rights, promote innovation and competition, and position the United States as a global leader in artificial intelligence. The decisions on the use of AI are ultimately made by the users who input data and interact with the system. They are responsible for ensuring that the system is used in a way that aligns with ethical and legal guidelines. We don't need big tech or government regulating ethical and social concerns of artificial intelligence because, like all things that the government gets involved in, what we end up with doesn't approach what the original intent was. There may be a movement to have a six-month pause on artificial intelligence. Intel spins out a new enterprise-focused Gen AI software company. Intel is making big moves in the market for AI-powered enterprise software. It is spinning out a new platform company with the backing of Boca Raton, 
Florida-based asset manager and investor, Digital Bridge, called Articulate, where it's spelled out as A-R-T-I-C-U-L, followed by the number eight. It's an awkward abbreviation of Articulate AI. The new entity builds off a proof of concept from an Intel collaboration with Boston Consulting Group at BCG early last May. Reuters reports that Intel using its hardware and a combination of open source and internally sourced software created a generative AI system that can read text and images running inside BCG's data centers to address BCG's security requirements. The system was developed within Intel over the course of two or so years, but it was more recently fine-tuned for BCG's specific uses. Initially, BCG was the sole go-to market supplier and customer of the system. Over the last few months, however, Intel worked to scale the platform, which is optimized for Intel hardware, but supports alternatives to companies in financial services, aerospace, semiconductor, telecommunications, and other industries that require high levels of security and specialized domain knowledge according to an Intel spokesperson. Articulate Gen AI software product was built from the ground up to address the needs of enterprises and is optimized for the speed of deployment, scalability, security, and sustainability, including cost. The Articulate platform delivers AI capabilities that keep customer data training and inference within the enterprise security perimeter. The platform also provides customers the choice of cloud, on-premises, or hybrid deployment. The Articulate team will comprise of ex-Intel employees, and Intel will retain an undisclosed stake in the firm. An Articulate spokesperson said, Intel and Articulate will remain strategically aligned, and Intel plans to leverage Articulate Enterprise Gen AI software for internal use cases as well as to offer it to end customers as part of a joint go-to-market partnership. This collaboration will drive consumption of Intel Compute offering, and Intel will continue to leverage Articulate's AI domain knowledge and expertise as Intel continues to grow its footprint in the generative AI market. Reuters notes that Intel's move to launch Articulate is its latest endeavor to seek outside capital for business units. The chipmaker spun out car chip firm Mobileye, sold off its memory chip division, and intends an eventual initial public offering of its programmable chip unit. The spinouts are part of Intel's strategy to raise capital for CEO Pat Gelsinger's comeback plan, which involves building out new chip factories in the United States and Europe as well as introducing new advanced chip manufacturing nodes within the next four years. In particular, Articulate fits into Gelsinger's plans to deliver new software products and services, including Gen AI-powered products that rival those from competitors like NVIDIA and AMD and make Intel hardware more attractive for a range of applications. So whether we call for a pause for a six-month on AI Companies are not going to stand still and wait for others to catch up with them. They're moving forward. 
Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, what do you have for us this week? Well, we're going to get a charge out of this one. <laughs> you know, okay, I've so been... I need my credit card? What? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, this is this is going to go bad. All right, go what on. Are you, Johnny Cash? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> We've been talking about uh, garage door opener controllers that need USB power and trying to keep them working during outages. Yeah, yeah. One of the, I, I just want to credit Anchor because they sent me absolutely everything I asked for. One of the power banks they sent me, the, the highest capacity one, 20,000 milliamp hours, was their 525. And it plugs right in. It, it has the right kind of batteries that won't freeze. Sure, yeah. But... It doesn't do standby charging, which means it doesn't work like a UPS. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, look, it's a great sidekick for Rote Warriors, and, and you know, it's just a misfit for this application. Mm-hmm. Uh, my homework, well, we we found an answer, but this one, the <laughs> 20K Anchor 525 power bank is about 42 bucks on Amazon. Okay, now, nice. Speaking of charging, Vitoman, V-T-O-M-A-N, their Flash Speed 1500 Fast Re- Fash, that's good, Fast Recharge Power Station. <laughs> yes. It's one of those big lithium iron phosphate battery boxes. So okay, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. This one has a hallmark in its ability to recharge to full in one hour. I okay. That's as much as six times faster as some of the others. Uh, it, uh, it, it made my jaw drop. To fully recharge in just one hour, well, you can use your car. You can use a solar panel. You can get on a bicycle with a generator and charge things. But when you're <laughs> plugged into AC, it, it's where it works. So please remember, when you're off the grid or the grid itself is off, the things you want to power only keep running well, there's enough charge in the power station. Yeah, so yeah. So the faster that comes back, better off you are. Same thought, two other ways. The less time it takes to recharge, the less time you're powerless. Yeah. And the faster the charge time, the sooner you're empowered again. There's a lot of safety, comfort, convenience, and answers in the Vito Man Flash Speed 1500. Mm-hmm. That's $1,700 on Amazon. Okay. All right. Uh, but, but, you know, it, when you start comparing that up, you know, uh, I, I know people in my area have gas generators. And $11,000 by the time you get oh, the gas pipe expanded. Oh, the, the yeah. It's, switch, they, the, they're the, going through all kinds of gyrations for it. It's like, yeah. uh, uh, it sounds really cool, but that's expensive. Well, in the last yeah. outage we had. And I'm it not turns, in the blizzard belt like you are. Uh, no, I am. And and it turns out our neighbor has a gas generator. Yeah. Now, he can use it for the house when he wants to, but he also let me plug into that generator. Yeah. Now, he, he, he's he got, uh, oh, I'm not, it's not whole house. It's probably 8 or 10 or 11 kilowatts. Yeah. More than enough for him and, and for me. And he's got a transfer switch, so he's not sending it up the wire to power yeah, every yeah, house. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. Uh it's a smart way to do it. And if you happen to have a smaller, like two kilowatt gas generator mm-hmm, yeah. and any of these battery box power stations, it's a great way to approach it because you're only outside for an hour with the gas thing running. 
Yeah. And then, yeah. then you're back in the warm house. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a nice little trade off there. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I'm learning a lot about this stuff and there is no answer that I truly love, including the utilities themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. I've had my share of, uh, we'll just say not the most stellar utilities. Yes. All right, we have time for another? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah one more. Uh, Eaton Triplite has a seven-port USB charger with stowage. I'm not going to call it storage, stowage. Stowage, okay. Uh, no, explain, really. yes. Yeah, let's start. Do you know anybody who has enough USB charging ports? No. No. <laughs> Thank, thanks to the Triplite branded Eaton, I just got their interesting seven-port charger itself. Not very tall. But it nests atop a storage box that makes it more interesting. Okay. And it has nine dividers on the top. So you can, you know, take typical gear like handsets or, or tablets, rest it on the edge. Nine dividers makes for eight compartments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Seven ports, you'll work it out. There's a three-amp USB-C port, a USB-A port with QC3 quick charging support, a and five USB-A ports, each good for up to 2.4 amps. So seven ports and eight places to put things. Uh, maybe one of those is a power bank with pass-through charging. Anyway, it's powered from a wall plug through a 15-volt DC adapter. So one wall outlet for seven charging ports and about having enough charging ports, your wish is granted. The Triplite 7-port USB charger, about 75 bucks at Amazon. That's some nice stuff. I, I, I like that. You know, we, we do have a... We do have at my church. We've got a number of these little iPad minis yeah. that we that we use for controlling the sound uh, for for everybody's in ear monitors. Oh, you got like a ten point uh, a ten slice toaster array of it's something uh, like that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not ten, but it's uh, it's it sounds very similar to this, which it is which is good. Yeah, I love I love the idea of these multi port. Uh, you know, Charge and then with the box tablets. underneath, you're not expanding the footprint at all, and you can keep your snack sure. in there. Sure, your snack. <laughs> there you go. Yes. We we refer to that as communion, but that's okay. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell, and that's Marty Winston. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York. New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, January the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting, and their website is bcug.com. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, January the 11th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, January the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, February the 1st. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. 
The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, February the 2nd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. And their website is acgnj.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, February the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. The telephone number is 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.